You're listening to The Enterprising Expat, stories of women who packed up their lives and moved abroad for love, a job, or a fresh start. What does it take to build a new life and business in a new country? What does it take to go from finding your feet to thriving? Find out how each woman did it. Be inspired, whether you're an expat or digital nomad, to bloom where you're planted. Welcome back to episode 56 of The Enterprising Expat. This week, I am so proud to release this interview with Sunday Schneider Bean. Um, if you follow expat accounts or social media or listen to podcasts about expat life, you may have come across Sunday with her business expertise, her spot on comments on expat life and just her joyful laugh. Sunday Schneider Bean is an intercultural strategist international coaching federation certified coach life coach and polyglot and as always on the enterprising expat i will let her tell her story hi sunday welcome to the enterprising expat please tell us tell us about your amazing business and what you do Okay. Um, so my, probably my signature program is called Year of Transformation. And that program is, it, it's tailored to the client. But what I often see is it's an accompanying partner who has given up their job, um, probably pretty well educated and moved with their spouse or their life partner and finds themselves abroad. And the adventure has kind of worn off. Um, maybe their kids have grown up or a little bit more independent, right? And they're asking themselves, now what? And they're, they're really facing almost a crisis of identity of, wait a minute, I said yes to this. I did want to do this, but now that I'm 10 years in or 12 years in, I was like, what did I do? You know, did I make a mistake? Should I have done things differently? And they're looking for, to be very clear, they're looking for purpose and meaning. They want to get unstuck and they're looking for purpose and meaning. And so we often, this is often what happens is we end up looking at where, what are the ways that they're holding themselves back? We often have to make sure they're taking really good care of their health and well-being because usually that starts to slide if you're not feeling like you're on purpose. And then once we work through that, we sort of like start the dream phase of like, what could you do if you could do something wherever you are? What would you want to do? Um, and we start playing with those ideas. And of course, all those monsters come up again of like, oh, I can't do it. It's never going to happen, that sort of thing. And then I'm just there by their side, helping them create clarity on that, helping them know what they really really want. And then while they make it happen. So that's year of transformation. I love that work because I take people and you, you probably have heard um, some of the cases from my clients. It's like really very, very stuck place, right? Emotionally, um, maybe physically or professionally to like doing really cool things. So I love that. Um, my other program, I do Expat Coach Coalition. I've been doing this for over a decade and I, I'm all about impact. So I realized one day I've been making a greater impact through my podcast. That was a way to reach, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people. Over a decade, I've, you know, gained the tools and created methodologies. It's kind of what I do. If people listen to my podcast, they know I kind of have like strategies and solutions and things that people can, tools in their hands that they can work with. And I realized that if I talk about impact, um, if I want to be really serious about that, I need to invite other people, other really great experienced expats or coaches who want to facilitate those conversations and train them in on my tools. 
and help them elevate their business. Because I really, one of the things I'm really passionate about is uh, people who are in the coaching industry usually have their heart in the right place, but they're terrible business people. <laughs> Because they're so generous, right? But they give everything to where there's nothing for them. And so that's like dual focus, like the, the tool, adding tools to their tool set for exactly for expats that's been designed for over a decade. Because I have multiple coaching backgrounds and I always had to adapt to the expat context, right? I always had to create my own tools because when I learned some, from someone from Switzerland or someone from the US, it wasn't about expat life. So I had to create tools to sort of fit the everyday challenges. Um, and then there's a brand new program I just launched, and that's actually community membership called Expats on Fire. And that's brand new. And I have created that because if anything I've learned in the last two years is the power of community and how, again, this is about me like getting out of my own way again, like not just me creating the impact, get, you know, doing it through the coalition, not just me helping people one-to-one, but like allowing the community to come in and support, right? Hello, control issues, right? Like, <laughs> So now I'm finally ready, right? I'm ready to like, I've been doing this for two years in other community forms with my clients. And I'm like, I need to do this with a greater community. And I wanted, it was really important to me that um, it could be sustainable because people, um, not everybody can commit lots of time. They have only small windows and I wanted it to be affordable, something really attainable for, for any budget. So I created that and it's launching. As a coach, it seems you have to wear many hats. You're a friend, a nurturer, and a cheerleader. How do you decide what you need to be each time with your coaching clients? Okay, it's interesting. So, nurture, friend, and cheerleader. Absolutely cheerleader, but... But (laughs) coaches, coaches are... I will cheer you on, and... I am not going to, I'm trying to think of an expression I can say that won't be censored on a podcast. I will not tell you lies, right? So it's about straight talk. It's around being crystal clear on um, whether someone is doing the work to make it happen, whether they're showing up for the process, whether they're confronting the way that they're making themselves small, right? So it's not an empty cheerleader like rah, rah, shish, kumbah. It's like, um, I would say these roles happen in different ways, right? So the cheerleader comes out and, and I think it comes out with me. And this is one thing I've learned about myself. It's kind of creepy, actually. <laughs> like I can see, I can see what they're capable of before they can. Does that make sense? It's like, I see it coming and I completely believe in them. Right. And I'm not, not, it's not a naive belief. It's like a really grounded, I know it my whole body and I know they're capable of it. And it's from that place that I cheer them on because it's like, it's like science, right? It's not a, it's not a a fluffy thing. It's like, you can do this. You are capable And I think that's the cheerleader role. Um, It does come with straight talk, right? And this is where I think the friend thing, I I feel conflicted about the word friend because, um, because one friend, uh, what fits is I love my clients. And I've I've talked about this in other podcasts. Like I wish there was a love, a word, a love word for how I feel about my clients. Like I deeply care about them. I appreciate who they are as full beings. And that's what friends do, right? But 
as a coach, I will not talk to you like you would your friend over a glass of wine, right? Like if you want to have kind of a bitch session about your partner, that's not where a coach goes. A coach is not, you know, giving you that what you get from a friend. You're the coach is giving you a neutral sort of sounding board. And that's what I think is really different. There's I have no attachment to the direction, right? That you what you bring to the session, your decisions do not impact the way I care about you, right? I care about you no matter what, right? And with friends, sometimes it can be like, ooh, that feels icky. And then it gets mixed up in the relationship, right? So that, but the, how I care about them, I, I resonate with the the friend part. Um, and, and then you said nurture. Absolutely. I love, I say, I like to love the crap out of my people that it's, I really want them to know that I support them and I want to show up for them. But sometimes nurturing is also straight talk, right? Nurturing is also being gentle when I know I need to be gentle, right? Or asking for permission. Like, hey, I I feel like I kind of want to challenge you on this, but let me know how you're doing. Like, is this, how are you, are you receptive to that right now? So those are some things. Is there something missing? I think this is where my role of, I, I have two hats. There's a strategist side of me and then there's the coaching side. I think because I've done this for so many years, I, the way in which someone gets there is unique to their path, but there's phases that I can see coming. Does that make sense? So I would add the word guide, right? And because I have this, for example, with my year long program, I I joke with some of my clients. I'm like, this is kind of like the morning sickness phase. Right. And it's okay, you know, and then we get to the other phase. I'm like, oh, remember like the cute belly bump, you know, the baby bump where you like you look cute in your clothes and you don't feel yucky yet. Like that's this phase. Like I I know what phases are coming. And because of that, that's why I can meet a client. And after half an hour, I know whether I should work with them or not. And I know whether it will be worth it for them because because I've just I trust the process and I've seen it happen so many times. I think you could say that you're both an expat and, and an immigrant. Um, do the two feel different? All right. So um, for context, I moved to Switzerland from the United States. So for people who don't know my background, um, I left at a very young age. Well, at, when I look at it in hindsight, I was like 21, 22. Well, then I was... I, my partner is Swiss. So I was very much, um, in the mindset of it. I need to adapt here. I need to, I don't want to say become Swiss, but I need to get a Swiss job. I need to speak the languages here. I need to integrate culturally. And there was, and it felt like it was forever, right? Like, <laughs> you know, it, it was scary. Cause I'm like, is this going to be okay? You know? And Um, there's that permanence around migrating and I have become Swiss. So I'm actually a Swiss citizen as well. And when you don't think you're going to leave, there is that permanence. But, and I think what's different than when you're an expat is like, when you're an expat, you're like, kind of take it or leave it with friendships, with language, with local culture, there's that looseness there. Right. But with, when you're in it, like I am literally married to the country, there's a level of commitment that you give that I don't think that we do as expats, right? And I'm not saying you should, right? I think you need to assess your situation, right? So that is what I think is very different with expat light. And I think what's similar between the two is that missing home, being far away from loved ones, those things are very similar. And the, 
sort of the identity shifts that happen when you've been abroad for a long time or you haven't lived in your home culture, those are also similar. Because I had this, this is a really interesting thing. I was watching an old, old video from when I was 18 years old and I was a dancer and I was at this dance competition and in the video, I'm like, hi, I'm Sunday. I'm, I'm American. I said, I'm American. And I was just like, what? I haven't introduced myself as American for a decade or more, right? Like, because my identity has shifted, I've lifted way more of my adult life outside of the U.S. than I have. I was born and raised there, but I le- I've lived way more of my life outside of the U.S. And I, I, as an adult, I've been socialized in Europe. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, so I think that um, the identity questions come up too as an expat because you're like, I've been, I don't know where I live. I don't live in Asia. I don't live in Africa. I don't live in Europe. I don't live, you know what I mean? So I think those things are similar. I don't want to, they're just very different experiences, right? And I, my, my experience is this weird thing of I've, now I have two nationalities and two, like Switzerland, I would call my second home just because I wasn't born and raised there. But if we go back to Switzerland, right? If we go back to Switzerland, I am, I'm still like, uh, expat or am I repatriating or am I doing both? Does that make sense? Sometimes I feel that I'm different people or I, I, I put forward different aspects of my personality in different countries. Is that something you felt or experienced? Um, do you have a different outlook for each country that you live in? Oh, hello. American in Switzerland. What do you think? <laughs> One of my first early memories, like, sorry to say, one of my negative memories was we were in a restaurant and uh, my husband said something that was funny and I laughed and my husband had like this look of horror in his eyes. And I was like, what happened? And I realized it was because you could hear me laughing over the silence of the restaurant. And I was like, oh, must contain joy. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know about you, but... um, you know, there's so many topics that we could talk about here, but there's two things going on. One, when I was young and really focused on adapting, I did then bring my joy in. I was the good, you know, adapter. But now that I'm, I say 40 also begins with F. Um, now that I'm over 40, <laughs> I don't know what I'll do when we go back to Switzerland. Maybe I will, maybe I'll take more space. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there'll be with certain people, I allow myself to take more space in other situations. I'm okay with being smaller, right? I don't know how that will be. I didn't even let myself think that when I first moved there. Yes. You're trying so yeah. hard to fit in and take all yes. of the boxes. And it's different with like each decade of life and you'll find out who you are and places impact on you. One difference about being a migrant in one space and an expat in another is when I'm in my husband's birth culture, there's a different dynamic than when we're in a third context. Oh God, yeah. So this is, this is, was a huge conflict for me. So I'm an intercultural specialist, right? So for me, I love culture. I want to engage in culture. And in Switzerland, I did my absolute best to, to really integrate into Swiss culture. And then when we went to Burkina Faso and Ouagadougou, there, there's so many barriers to integrating, 
right? Um, and just because I want to have local connections doesn't mean they've got time for me, right? And they don't need to have time for me, <laughs> right? So there's, that is a really interesting um, situation. And you've got all the other divides, right? The socioeconomic divides, cultural divides, language divides, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a hard for me when I first got to West Africa. I'm like, the only way I know how to adapt to a culture is to like dive in as deep as I can. And now how do I do that? And that was hard. Um, and so, because I also had new priorities, I had small kids at home. I was running a business. We knew it was only going to be four years. It ended up being shorter because of the unrest that was there. And it, it felt, um, it felt also hard to connect with locals. And I'm like, where are the like female entrepreneurs that are, you know what I mean? I met one coach and I did an article on her. Um, it's like, I, I would have a hard time like identifying with a fruit lady outside of the daycare, but we would talk about being mamas together, right? And my bad French, but where is our real connection there? Right. So where would I find real connection with people? It was hard to find Wagalese women, for example. Um, and not that they have time for me. They're too busy with their families and their jobs and baptisms and funerals and they do not have time. And, and so that was hard for me as an interculturalist. I'm like, okay, I need to find other ways to, to learn about the culture here. So what, what worked for me was I, um, on my podcast intro, you hear a djembe and that's my djembe teacher and I laughing and him trying to <laughs> support me. And I'm like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do something thing here that will make me um, have some sort of taste. So we made the djembe from scratch, like went to the market, picked out the wood, talked to the carver. Like that was a great way to do that. It was a way for me to try to have local connections, right? But you fast forward to South Africa, and um, one thing that's also a struggle here is the security situation. And coming from a Swiss context where you can imagine it's like the polar opposite, in the beginning, you're almost like told not there. You're, you're told to be in a bubble. You're actually, we live in a bubble, right? We actually, when our, when the boom goes up in our estate, we're like, we're back in the bubble. Like we are, we literally live in a bubble. So you returned to the U.S. to do your master's. What, how did it feel for you? Let me not put words into your mouth. Right. So, well, I mean, technically it was cultural reentry shock, right? But what, what hit me was there were so many small things. So for example, at the orientation, when I was big circle, everybody introduced themselves. And I said, hi, I'm Sunday. I'm from North Dakota. I told my story. And at the end, people are like, you're not from North Dakota. And I'm like, yeah, I am. And they're like, no, your accent. And I'm like, what do you mean my accent? <laughs> but apparently after four and a half years of being in Switzerland, speaking German, my accent had changed and nobody believed me when I said I was from North Dakota. Um, so then I, all of a sudden I thought I was among my people and I was like, wait a minute, I'm an outsider here. And then I remember being with my two best friends from high school. Oh, I don't even know if I should tell this story. They're going to be mad at me if they hear this story. But I was with my two best friends from high school and um, we were going to spend time together. And they wanted to go like put henna on their eyebrows or eyelids or something. I'm not like a salon lady. So they were going to do like this cosmetic thing, a temporary thing, beauty related, which isn't my style. I'm not very Swiss, right? And then we went to the mall. God forbid, like 
what? All these stores, all this commercialism, coffees that were like the size of my head. I just couldn't handle it. And I sat in on this bench and I cried. They went in, they went in to like shop for something. And I cried on the bench because I was so over sensory, you know, experience from the mall and overwhelmed. And I'm like, I don't feel at home with my two best friends. So that was hard. That was hard. And even things like the yogurt I used to buy and eat, I couldn't eat because it was so full of saccharin and it was disgusting after having full fat, you know, regular sugar yogurt in Switzerland for years. I couldn't even enjoy the same food. So you know how comfort foods are. I didn't even have comfort food anymore. So those were the things that that were disorienting for me where I'm like, oh, I don't belong here either. Sometimes I think accompanying spouses get the crappy end of the stick. Um, are companies realizing that they need to also provide support and maybe opportunities within the company um, for accompanying spouses? Um, is, is this an issue that, that, that they're beginning to take note of? Uh, so, um, yes, some are. No, some are, I have to say, um, and there's no affiliation with this organization, but I just, they come to my mind. I know that, for example, Shell has a legacy of supporting accompanying partners. And I've even had um, people from Shell, accompanying partners approach me and say, Shell supports this kind of work. Would you like to work together? So there are some organizations that get it and they've got it for a long time. Um, what I've noticed is, and I, I used to work inside corporate, right? And I used to do, I used to respond to requests like one day training on Switzerland do's and don'ts. And I was like, no, you're not going to get that from me. Like that's not... It's not going to be high value. But what I've noticed from from corporate is that they um, they do prefrontal loading like they'll do before you go training. But once you're there, it's like we've done our job. And that's I got so uh, one of my things is I get so sick of hearing myself complain about something. I just have to do it myself. So I got really sick of no one in corporate offering uh, support just in time. Like during the assignment, what they needed. So I create, that's why I created that program, Adapt and Succeed, that I work on with, with my coaches from Expat Coach Coalition, because I wanted expats to have something in hand right when they need it. And I think what, what corporate doesn't do well is realize that if the accompanying partner or the families are not telling you they're not okay, doesn't mean they're not okay. You don't want to raise your hand and look like you're a red flag. So they, they actually, I think that they should have a budget where it's dedicated to get transition support and the, and the accompanying spouse is encouraged to use it. And for the, for that reason, like as a matter of course, because what I notice is, um, you know, I always tell people if you're at pick up and drop off at the international school and someone asks you how you are and you say, I'm fine, I won't believe you. <laughs> We're adults and adult life is complicated. And, you know, there are things that are going on all the time. So you're not as fine as you're letting on. <laughs> and I um, I work with women who are those women who say I'm fine. And they're probably even leading the PTA, right? But we're all dealing with our own thing, 
right? And uh, especially those who don't have something like a job to give them validation or purpose or financial security, right? So I think I think corporate could do a better job at um, realizing that the accompanying partner is kind of a silent but powerful partner in the assignment. And it's not, I just don't know. I know that there's always budget considerations, right? And I know that corporations feel like they shouldn't get too involved in the private life. But how much more involved are you in private life when you uproot an entire family and move them from one country to the next? There's some responsibility in that. So in 2013, 2014, when we met, working online wasn't really a recognized thing. It wasn't as mainstream as it, as it is now. Um, and it seemed to confuse a lot of people. What barriers did you come up against trying to run a business online? Um, this was in 2013 where in Switzerland they weren't doing virtual coaching and that wasn't really happening. So there was like this psychological barrier for a lot of people that she's so far away type of thing. Um, that was one, one thing around... Um, back then it was like, we were on the telephone, you know, like we had teleconference, like 1-800 number teleconference stuff because it wasn't, you know, cause in West Africa too, the internet wasn't always good and it wasn't, not everybody had Zoom or FaceTime. There was Skype. Right. Um, and so for my clients, I think the ones who were abroad were okay with it because they were doing distance relationships with their families anyway. So that felt like a natural next step. What was hard, I think, um, that I felt more was, um, that people locally, my expat community didn't get that I was running a business. Because I was the accompanying partner, they thought I had time for coffees and had all the flexibility in the world. And I think that was more of the interesting thing where people didn't realize that what I was doing was a real business, right? And not just like a little side hobby or, and that's just might be triggering my stuff. But I remember being at a party once where there was a man um, who had the lead assignment and his wife had the, was the accompanying partner. And he said something about, yeah, I remember there was a, a, a semester or whatever, where I was the accompanying partner. It was so nice to have um, extra time on your, my hands, like you have or something. And I looked at him and I was like, have we've already talked about what I do. Like he, he knew I was running a business and, but because I didn't have the lead assignment, he assumed I had all this flexibility. I said, actually, I don't have flexibility. I said, my clients are global. I, I work 40 hours a week. And that I think is a shift of people when we talk about online business, that it's like this fluffy hobby, right? Or it's, um, it's, Ah, uh, I don't want to say negotiable. Like it's, um, it's like an add on, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's not as important. I have flexibility. That's what I love about my work. Right. But all I know is the accompanying, the one who has a lead assignment has a guaranteed salary every month, not the one who has the, uh, location independent online business. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. And sometimes you'll, like you say, you'll take the time to tell people what you do. Then you'll meet them two weeks later and it's like, oh, how's your little thing? Are you still doing your little business? I'm like, no, no, you, you will not refer to what I do as my little thing. <laughs> right, right. And I do think, um, and here's the thing that comes from my work too. I think the first person that thinks it is often the accompanying partner where in my work, it's often women um, where they don't take their business seriously. 
seriously. They don't take what they're doing seriously. They, they see it as, you know, if I can squeeze in some time, I'll do it. Right. And they let everybody else's priorities or urgent matters. Right. And I'm doing that in air quotes, dominate how they spend their time. Yes. Yes. All of these hurdles, all of these hurdles, everybody had a 2020, but, um, what did networking look like before 2020? And now what is it looking like now? Right. So I, I've been location independent for seven years and I make a choice that my clients are, are location independent, not in my home country because I kind of want my friends to be my friends and my clients to be my clients. I don't want to go to a party in my city and then like try to acquire clients. You know, that's just kind of a choice that I have. One of the things that was hard about 2020 is one of my favorite um, face-to-face conferences got canceled and that's Families in Global Transition. And that like completely took the wind out of my sails because they feel like family. And that was really hard to not have happen. And what has, what do we do instead? I had actually um, a happy hour, I had a expat happy hour, happy hour, where I invited um, families in global transition to get together and still just connect and have a fun kind of Zoom call. This was before lockdown happened all over Europe. It was already happening in China, but it hadn't hit Europe yet. And we just connected and checked in on our friends in South Asia, you know what I mean? And that was a way to stay connected. I think I've, um, uh, to be really frank, I think there, because I haven't seen my family, because I didn't get to see my FIGT family, because I didn't get to see, you know, my siblings and that there's a level of loss there. And there's a level of loneliness for, con- you know, a need for connection that is there. And because of that, I think the positive side is that I'm like, you know what? Well, then I'm going to take extra care to reach out to new people or nurture new relationships or nurture the ones I do have. Um, So that might, it's not a good exchange for it, but I think that's something that happened in 2020 that kept things afloat. Yeah, yeah. I think we all had to look at new ways to connect and sort of reconnect with things that were easier to do before we were locked down. Well, one last point on that. I think the important difference is that it looks different when we connect now, because I think what has happened is globally, we have dropped our guard and that we hop on the call and we're, you know, kids are in pajamas in the background and we've got, you know, whatever. And it's like, how are you really And I think that's different that we professionally and personally, we've been able to connect in ways that are way more connected than when everything was peachy. Yes. From the time you decided to strike out on your own, was there a time you ugly cried over your business? Yes. What made you pick yourself up and say, okay. (laughs) Oh, the ugly cry. Okay. So one really hard, ugly cry was super embarrassing. So I, um, I was in, I think year two, maybe year three. Um, and I was, I finally, I knew that I had to get, um, savvy on marketing and sales. So after I did B school, I hired uh, Kendrick Shope to do authentic selling because it really resonated with me about authenticity. And I remember I, she and I had a call, I think at eight at night and I was, this must have been, I was solo parenting. I was by myself with the kids for that. My husband was gone for some reason. And I had just seen like an invoice from one of my clients get paid. And I was like, are you kidding me? 
Like the number was so small for how much I had been working, right? And I was doing the numbers on what I was going to get at the end of the year. And I, you know, I was making a really good corporate salary before I left. So of course the bar was up there and I wasn't at my corporate salary yet. And um, so I had my call with her right afterwards. And it was like, I call it dolphin voice. I was like, <laughs> she's like, she's not like a therapist or a life coach. No, I was like gross, snotty, ugly crying on the phone to my marketing sales coach. And because she's lovely, she held space for that. And um, we were able to look at what wasn't working and what was working. And that moment was a huge shift in my business. And it was from that moment on that I made the right decisions to change how I was showing up in my business and how much money I was making. But I had to, I had to get to that low point. And there were other cry fests before, right? Um, but I had to get to that low point to sort of get clarity on what was working and what wasn't working. Yes. And that you can look at it and not just throw in the towel. Mm -hmm. I thought about it, but the thing is, is what would I have done instead? Right? Like, when you're out of options. You know? Yes, I do know. Make my husband go home and now I just try to get my corporate job back and now he finished. Like, no, I, there, this was the thing. It's like, no, I am going to make this work. Right. Yes. Right. And I have to, I have to put a caveat in here. There's also um, a level of privilege in that choice because my income was not dependent on keeping our home or putting food in my kids' bellies, right? So I, I want to make sure I say that because we had the stability of my partner's income that I don't want an entrepreneur out there who's taking care of their kids or trying to pay rent and doesn't have a flexibility or stability to feel like they're doing something wrong. Your situation is not their situation and you don't know what responsibilities they have or don't have. And I think there's a lot of shame among entrepreneurs. Like I should be making five figures. I should be making six figures. I should be whatever. But like, we all have different life contexts. We all have different responsibilities, abilities, opportunities, access, right? Um, so I recognize that I could power through those three years knowing that we weren't going to lose our apartment. Yeah, it's an important point. Yes, yes, it is. There is that freedom. Um, it, it doesn't mean that we don't go through the same, jump through the same hoops in terms of questioning ourselves. But yeah, there, there is a bit of privilege attached to it. <laughs> Okay, I have a quick fire round. What is the most different thing you have eaten? Sort of like, oh, I didn't know you could eat that. <laughs> I love that question. Um, oh gosh, the problem is is I'm a vegetarian, so my examples aren't gonna be very exotic. <laughs> I'm judging myself. Like everything I think of, I'm like, that's not exotic enough because everybody else is global. Like, you know, for me, different was when I got to Vietnam and I ate the dragon fruit. Yes. Right? That's like, tastes like nothing. It's pink on the outside and black and white on the inside. I hate them. I don't like it. <laughs> they don't have any taste. They do to me. I don't like it. That's no, okay. But maybe, <laughs> um, maybe shark. Maybe shark. Yeah. That's probably bad. Yeah. Like now in hindsight, it's probably bad to eat shark, but I have eaten shark. Um, yeah, I've, I've eaten it too. <laughs> the only thing I will not eat is like uh, tarantula. I, I won't do it. <laughs> then I'm, I'm a... 
Is there a holiday or some sort of celebration that you've seen or been a part of in your travels that perhaps is not well known or you're just like, wow, that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced? Mm, easy answer. Oh my gosh. I went to the West African um, Mask and Dance Festival and I was just like, oh my God, I love my life. Like it was incredible to watch those dancers and the costumery and of course I I have no idea the symbolism that was going on that I was missing but it was such an incredible situation my my little eight-year-old self was so happy for me <laughs> to like be able to be there because it was one of those once in a lifetime things and I have videos I can send you afterwards they're so beautiful <laughs> I need to travel my own continent that I've learned to look at it with different eyes after being away. Is there one thing that you always travel with or just take with you whatever country you are going to? Um, Well, I always bring my toothbrush with me. Um, I, this sounds kind of funny, but I always bring my journals with me and I'm talking like journals from when I was in college. And I think it's like, maybe subconsciously it's, I always feel like my life is a series of short stories, not a novel, right? So for some reason, I'd like to keep those journals to remind me of those, that story, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, five years ago, two years ago, because I don't even recognize that character very much anymore, you know? That's absolutely perfect. Okay. How do people get in contact with you? Drop all of your links and social media, please. Okay, perfect. So if you are a fan of podcasts, and they must be if they're listening to yours... Um, they can find me at Expat Happy Hour, which is my podcast. My website is sundaybean.com. That's S-U-N-D-A-E-B-E-A-N. I am on all the predictable channels under Sunday Bean or Sunday Schneider Bean. <laughs> um, and they can, you know, direct message me or email me anytime. And I'd love to connect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and energy. Thank you for listening to The Enterprising Expat. You can help the show grow and reach more people by sharing this episode with your friends or supporting us on social media. Cheers.